Section 17 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 17. From Swan in Love. It would happen, as often as not, that he had stayed so long outside with his little girl, before going to the Verdurins, that, as soon as the little phrase had been rendered by the pianist, Swann would discover that it was almost time for Odette to go home. He used to take her back as far as the door of her little house in the Rue La Perouse, behind the Arc de Triomphe, and it was perhaps on this account and so as not to demand the monopoly of her favours, that he sacrificed the pleasure, not so essential to his well-being, of seeing her earlier in the evening, of arriving with her at the Verdurins, to the exercise of this other privilege, for which she was grateful, of their leaving together, a privilege which he valued all the more because, thanks to it, he had the feeling that no one else would see her, no one would thrust himself between them, no one could prevent him from remaining with her in spirit, after he had left her for the night. And so, night after night, she would be taken home in Swann's carriage, and one night, after she had got down, and while he stood at the gate and murmured, Till to-morrow, then, she turned impulsively from him, plucked a last lingering chrysanthemum, in the tiny garden which flanked the pathway from the street to her house, and as he went back to his carriage, thrust it into his hand. He held it pressed to his lips during the drive home, and when, in due course, the flower withered, locked it away, like something very precious, in a secret drawer of his desk. He would escort her to the gate, but no farther, Twice only had he gone inside to take part in the ceremony, of such vital importance in her life, of afternoon tea. The loneliness and emptiness of those short streets, consisting almost entirely of low-roofed houses, self-contained but not detached, their monotony interrupted here and there by the dark intrusion of some sinister little shop, at once an historical document, an assorted survival from the days when the district was still one of ill repute. The snow which had lain in the garden beds or clung to the branches of the trees, the careless disarray of the season, the assertion in this man-made city of a state of nature, had all combined to add an element of mystery to the warmth, the flowers, the luxury which he had found inside. Passing by, on his left-hand side, and on what, although raised some way above the street, was the ground floor of the house, passing by Odette's bedroom, which looked out to the back over another little street, running parallel with her own, he had climbed a staircase that went straight up between dark painted walls, from which hung oriental draperies, strings of Turkish beads, and a huge Japanese lantern, suspended by a silken cord from the ceiling, 
which last, however, so that her visitors should not have to complain of the want of any of the latest comforts of Western civilization, was lighted by a gas jet inside, to the two drawing-rooms, large and small. These were entered through a narrow lobby, the wall of which, checkered with the lozenges of a wooden trellis, such as you see on garden walls, only gilded, was lined from end to end by a long rectangular box in which bloomed, as though in a hothouse, a row of large chrysanthemums, at that time still uncommon, though by no means so large as the mammoth blossoms which horticulturalists have since succeeded in making grow. Swan was irritated, as a rule, by the sight of these flowers, which had then been the rage in Paris for about a year, but it had pleased him, on this occasion, to see the gloom of the little lobby, shot with rays of pink and gold and white, by the fragrant petals of these ephemeral stars, which kindle their cold fires in the murky atmosphere of winter afternoons. Odette had received him in a tea-gown of pink silk, which left her arms and neck bare. She had made him sit down beside her in one of the many mysterious little retreats which had been contrived in the various recesses of the room, sheltered by enormous palm-trees growing out of pots of Chinese porcelain, or by screens upon which were fastened photographs and fans, and bows of ribbon. She had said at once, "'You're not comfortable there. Wait a moment. I'll arrange things for you.' and with a titter of laughter, the complacency of which implied that some little invention of her own was being brought into play, she had installed behind his head and beneath his feet great cushions of Japanese silk, which she pummeled and buffeted as though determined to lavish on him all her riches, and regardless of their value. But when her footman began to come into the room, bringing, one after another, the innumerable lamps which, contained mostly in porcelain vases, burned singly or in pairs upon the different pieces of furniture, as upon so many altars, rekindled in the twilight, already almost nocturnal, of this winter afternoon, the glow of a sunset more lasting, more roseate, more human, filling, perhaps, with romantic wonder, the thoughts of some solitary lover wandering in the street below, and brought to a standstill before the mystery of the human presence which those lighted windows at once revealed and screened from sight. She had kept an eye sharply fixed on the servant to see whether he set each of the lamps down in the place appointed it. She felt that if he were to put even one of them where it ought not to be, the general effect of her drawing-room would be destroyed, and that her portrait, which rested upon a sloping easel, draped with plush, would not catch the light. And so, with feverish impatience, she followed the man's clumsy movements, scolding him severely when he passed too close to a pair of bow-pots, which she had made a point of always tidying herself, in case the plants should be knocked over and went across to them now to make sure that he had not broken off any of the flowers. She found something quaint in the shape of each of her Chinese ornaments, 
and also in her orchids, the cutleus especially, these being, with chrysanthemums, her favourite flowers, because they had the supreme merit of not looking in the least like other flowers, but of being made, apparently, out of scraps of silk or satin. It looks just as though it had been cut out of the lining of my cloak, she said to Swan, pointing to an orchid, with a shade of respect in her voice for so smart a flower, for this distinguished, unexpected sister, whom nature had suddenly bestowed upon her, so far removed from her in the scale of existence, and yet so delicate, so refined, so much more worthy than many real women of admission to her drawing-room. As she drew his attention, now to the fiery-tongued dragons, painted upon a bowl, or stitched upon a fire-screen, now to a fleshy cluster of orchids, now to a dromedary of inlaid silver work with ruby eyes, which kept company, upon her mantelpiece, with a toad carved in jade. She would pretend now to be shrinking from the ferocity of the monsters, or laughing at their absurdity, now blushing at the indecency of the flowers, now carried away by an irresistible desire to run across and kiss the toad and dromedary, calling them darlings. And these affectations were in sharp contrast to the sincerity of some of her attitudes, notably her devotion to Our Lady of the Leghetto, who had once, when Odette was living at Nice, cured her of a mortal illness, and whose medal, in gold, she always carried on her person, attributing to it unlimited powers. She poured out Swan's tea, inquired lemon or cream, and on his answering cream, please, went on smiling a cloud, and as he pronounced it excellent, you see, I know just how you like it. This tea had indeed seemed to Swan, just as it seemed to her, something precious, and love is so far obliged to find some justification for itself, some guarantee of its duration, in pleasures which, on the contrary, would have no existence apart from love, and must cease with its passing, that when he left her at seven o'clock, to go and dress for the evening, all the way home, sitting bolt upright in his brougham, unable to repress the happiness with which the afternoon's adventure had filled him, he kept on repeating to himself what fun it would be to have a little woman like that, in a place where one could always be certain of finding what one can never be certain of finding, a really good cup of tea. An hour or so later he received a note from Odette, and at once recognized that florid handwriting, of which an affectation of British stiffness imposed an apparent discipline upon its shapeless characters, significant perhaps to less intimate eyes than his, of an untidiness of mind, a fragmentary education, a want of sincerity and decision. Swann had left his cigarette-case at her house. Why, she wrote, did you not forget your heart also? I should never have let you have that back. More important, perhaps, was a second visit which he paid her a little later. 
On his way to the house, as always when he knew that they were to meet, he formed a picture of her in his mind, and the necessity, if he was to find any beauty in her face, of fixing his eyes on the fresh and rosy protuberance of her cheekbones, and of shutting out all the rest of those cheeks, which were so often languorous and sallow, except when they were punctuated with little fiery spots, plunged him in acute depression, as proving that one's ideal is always unattainable, and one's actual happiness mediocre. He was taking her an engraving which she had asked to see. She was not very well. She received him wearing a wrapper of mauve crepe de chine, which draped her bosom like a mantle with a richly embroidered web. As she stood there beside him, brushing his cheek with the loosened tresses of her hair, bending one knee in what was almost a dancer's pose, so that she could lean without tiring herself over the picture at which she was gazing, with bended head, out of those great eyes which seemed so weary and so sullen when there was nothing to animate her. Swan was struck by her resemblance to the figure of Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, which is to be seen in one of the Sistine frescoes. He had always found a peculiar fascination in tracing in the paintings of the old masters not merely the general characteristics of the people whom he encountered in his daily life, but rather what seems less susceptible of generalization, the individual features of men and women whom he knew, as, for instance, in the bust of the Doge Loredan by Antonio Rizzo, the prominent cheekbones, the slanting eyebrows, in short, a speaking likeness to his own coachman, Remy. In the colouring of a Girlandaio, the nose of Monsieur de Palancy, in a portrait of Tintoretto, the invasion of the plumpness of the cheek by an outcrop of whisker, the broken nose, the penetrating stare, the swollen eyelids of Dr. de Bourbon, perhaps because he had always regretted in his heart that he had confined his attention to the social side of life, had talked always, rather than acted, he felt that he might find a sort of indulgence bestowed upon him by those great artists, in his perception of the fact that they also had regarded with pleasure, and had admitted into the canon of their works, such types of physiognomy, as give those works the strongest possible certificate of reality and trueness to life, a modern, almost a topical savour. Perhaps, also, he had so far succumbed to the prevailing frivolity of the world of fashion, that he felt the necessity of finding in an old masterpiece some such obvious and refreshing allusion to a person about whom jokes could be made and repeated and enjoyed to-day. Perhaps, on the other hand, he had retained enough of the artistic temperament to be able to find a genuine satisfaction in watching these individual features take on a more general significance when he saw them, uprooted and disembodied in the abstract idea of similarity between an historical portrait and a modern original, 
whom it was not intended to represent. However that might be, and perhaps because the abundance of impressions which he, for some time past, had been receiving, though indeed they had come to him rather through the channel of his appreciation of music, had enriched his appetite for painting as well. It was with an unusual intensity of pleasure, a pleasure destined to have a lasting effect upon his character and conduct, that Swann remarked Odette's resemblance to the Zipporah of that Alessandro de Mariano, to whom one shrinks from giving his more popular surname, now that Botticelli suggests not so much the actual work of the master as that false and banal conception of it which has of late obtained common currency. He no longer based his estimate of the merit of Odette's face on the more or less good quality of her cheeks, and the softness and sweetness as of carnation petals, which he supposed would greet his lips there, should he ever hazard an embrace, but regarded it rather as a skein of subtle and lovely silken threads, which his gazing eyes collected and wound together following the curving line from the skein of the ball, where he mingled the cadence of her neck with the spring of her hair and the droop of her eyelids, as though from a portrait of herself in which her type was made clearly intelligible. He stood gazing at her. Traces of the old fresco were apparent in her face and limbs, and these he tried incessantly afterwards to recapture, both when he was with Odette, and when he was only thinking of her in her absence, and, albeit his admiration for the Florentine masterpiece, was probably based on his discovery that it had been reproduced in her, the similarity enhanced her beauty also, and rendered her more precious in his sight. Swann reproached himself with his failure, hitherto, to estimate at her true worth a creature whom the great Sandro would have adored, and counted himself fortunate that his pleasure in the contemplation of Odette found a justification in his own system of aesthetic. He told himself that, in choosing the thought of Odette as the inspiration of his dreams of ideal happiness, he was not, as he had until supposed, falling back, merely, upon an expedient of doubtful and certainly inadequate value, since she contained in herself what satisfied the utmost refinement of his taste in art. He failed to observe that this quality would not naturally avail to bring Odette into the category of women whom he found desirable, simply because his desires had always run counter to his aesthetic taste. The words Florentine painting were invaluable to Swann. They enabled him, gave him, as it were, a legal title, to introduce the image of Odette into a world of dreams and fancies which, until then, she had been debarred from entering, and where she assumed a new and nobler form. And whereas the mere sight of her in the flesh, by perpetually reviving his misgivings as to the quality of her face, her figure, the whole of her beauty, used to cool the ardour of his love, these misgivings were swept away, 
and that love confirmed now that he could re-erect his estimate of her on the sure foundations of his aesthetic principles, while the kiss, the bodily surrender, which would have seemed natural and but moderately attractive, had they been granted him by a creature of somewhat withered flesh and sluggish blood, coming as they now came to crown his adoration of a masterpiece in a gallery, must, it seemed, prove as exquisite as they would be supernatural. And when he was tempted to regret that, for months past, he had done nothing but visit Odette, he would assure himself that he was not unreasonable in giving up much of his time to the study of an inestimably precious work of art, cast for once in a new, a different, and especially charming medal, in an unmatched exemplar which he would contemplate at one moment with the humble, spiritual, disinterested mind of an artist, at another with the pride, the selfishness, the sensual thrill of a collector. On his study-table, at which he worked, he had placed, as it were, a photograph of Odette, a reproduction of Jethro's daughter. He would gaze in admiration at the large eyes, the delicate features in which the imperfection of her skin might be surmised, the marvellous locks of hair that fell along her tired cheeks, and adapting what he had already felt to be beautiful on aesthetic grounds to the idea of a living woman, he converted it with a series of physical merits which he congratulated himself on finding assembled in the person of one whom he might, ultimately, possess. The vague feeling of sympathy which attracts a spectator to a work of art, now that he knew the type, in warm flesh and blood of Jethro's daughter, became a desire which more than compensated thenceforward, for that with which Odette's physical charms had at first failed to inspire him. When he had sat for a long time gazing at the Botticelli, he would think of his own living Botticelli, who seemed all the lovelier in contrast, and as he drew towards him the photograph of Zipporah, he would imagine that he was holding Odette against his heart. It was not only Odette's indifference, however, that he must take pains to circumvent, it was also not infrequently his own, feeling that, since Odette had had every facility for seeing him, she seemed no longer to have very much to say to him when they did meet. He was afraid lest the manner, at once trivial, monotonous, and seemingly unalterable, which she now adopted when they were together, should ultimately destroy in him that romantic hope that a day might come when she would make a vowel of her passion, by which hope alone he had become and would remain her lover. And so, to alter, to give a fresh moral aspect to that Odette, of whose unchanging mood he was afraid of growing weary, he wrote, suddenly, a letter full of hinted discoveries and feigned indignation, which he sent off so that it should reach her before dinner-time. He knew that she would be frightened, and that she would reply, and he hoped that, when the fear of losing him clutched at her heart, 
it would force from her words such as he had never yet heard her utter, and he was right. By repeating this device, he had won from her the most affectionate letters that she had, so far, written him. One of them, which she had sent to him at midday by a special messenger from the Maison Dorée, it was the day of the Paris Mercier fete, given for the victims of the recent floods in Mercia, beginning, My dear, my hand trembles so that I can scarcely write. And these letters he had kept in the same drawer as the withered chrysanthemum. Or else, if she had not had time to write, when he arrived at the Verdurins, she would come running up to him with an, I've something to say to you and he would gaze curiously at the revelation in her face and speech of what she had hitherto kept concealed from him of her heart. Even as he drew near to the Verdurin's door, and caught sight of the great lamp-lit spaces of the drawing-room windows, whose shutters were never closed, he would begin to melt at the thought of the charming creature whom he would see as he entered the room, basking in that golden light. Here and there the figures of the guests stood out, sharp and black, between lamp and window, shutting off the light, like those little pictures which one sees sometimes pasted here and there upon a glass screen, whose other panes are mere transparencies. He would try to make out Odette, and then, when he was once inside, without thinking, his eyes sparkled suddenly with such radiant happiness that Monsieur Verdurin said to the painter, Hmm, seems to be getting warm. Indeed, her presence gave the house what none of the other houses that he visited seemed to possess, a sort of tactual sense, a nervous system which ramified into each of its rooms and sent a constant stimulus to his heart. And so the simple and regular manifestations of a social organism, namely the little clan, were transformed for Swann into a series of daily encounters with Odette, and enabled him to feign indifference to the prospect of seeing her, or even a desire not to see her, in doing which he incurred no very great risk, since even although he had written to her during the day, he would of necessity see her in the evening, and accompany her home. But one evening, when, irritated by the thought of that inevitable dark drive together, he had taken his other little girl all the way around to the Bois, so as to delay as long as possible the moment of his appearance at the Verdurins, he was so late in reaching them that Odette, supposing that he did not intend to come, had already left. Seeing the room bare of her, Swann felt his heart wrung by sudden anguish. He shook with the sense that he was being deprived of a pleasure whose intensity he began then for the first time to estimate, having always, hitherto, had that certainty of finding it whenever he would, which, as in the case of all our pleasures, reduced, if it did not altogether, blind him to its dimensions. Did you notice the face he pulled when he saw that she wasn't here? Monsieur Verdurin asked his wife. 
I think we may say that he's hooked. The face he pulled, exploded Dr. Cattard, who, having left the house for a moment to visit a patient, had just returned to fetch his wife, and did not know whom they were discussing. Do you mean to say that you didn't meet him on the doorstep? The loveliest of swans? No. Monsieur Swann has been here. Just for a moment. We had a glimpse of a swan tremendously agitated, in a state of nerves. You see, Odette had left. You mean to say that she has gone the whole hog with him? That she has burned her boats? inquired the doctor cautiously, testing the meaning of his phrases. Why, of course not. There's absolutely nothing in it. In fact, between you and me, I think she's making a great mistake in behaving like a silly little fool, which she is, incidentally. Come, 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 said Monsieur Verdurin. How on earth do you know that there's nothing in it? We haven't been there to see, have we now? She would have told me, answered Madame Verdurin with dignity. I may say that she tells me everything. As she has no one else at present, I told her that she ought to live with him. She makes out that she can't. She admits she was immensely attracted by him at first, but he's always shy with her, and that makes her shy with him. Besides, she doesn't care for him in that way, she says. It's an ideal love, platonic, you know. She's afraid of rubbing the bloom off. Oh, I don't know half the things, she says. How should I? And yet he's exactly the sort of man she wants. I beg to differ from you, Monsieur Verdurin, courteously interrupted. I am only half satisfied with the gentleman. I feel that he poses. Madame Verdurin's whole body stiffened. Her eyes stared blankly, as though she had suddenly been turned into a statue, a device by means of which she might be supposed not to have caught the sound of that unutterable word, which seemed to imply that it was possible for people to pose in her house, and therefore that there were people in the world who mattered more than herself. Anyhow, if there is nothing in it, I don't suppose it's because our friend believes in her virtue. And yet, you never know, he seems to believe in her intelligence. I don't know whether you heard the way he lectured her the other evening about Venture's sonata. I am devoted to Odette, but, really, to expound theories of aesthetic to her, the man must be a prize idiot. Look here, I won't have you say nasty things about Odette, broke in Madame Verdurin, in her spoiled child manner. She is charming. There's no reason why she shouldn't be charming. We are not saying anything nasty about her, only that she is not the embodiment of either virtue or intellect. After all, he turned to the painter, does it matter so very much whether she is virtuous or not? You can't tell. She might be a great deal less charming, if she were. On the landing, Swann had run into the Verdurin's butler, who had been somewhere else a moment earlier, when he arrived, 
and who had been asked by Odette to tell Swann, but that was at least an hour ago, that she would probably stop to drink a cup of chocolate at Prévost's on her way home. Swann set off at once for Prévost's, but every few yards his carriage was held up by others, or by people crossing the street, loathsome obstacles, each of which he would gladly have crushed beneath his wheels, were it not that a policeman fumbling with a notebook would delay him even longer than the actual passage of the pedestrian. He counted the minutes feverishly, adding a few seconds to each, so as to be quite certain that he had not given himself short measure, and so, possibly, exaggerated whatever chance there might be, actually, of his arriving at Prévost's in time, and of finding her still there. And then, in a moment of illumination, like a man in a fever who awakes from sleep and is conscious of the absurdity of the dream shapes among which his mind has been wandering, without any clear distinction between himself and them, Swann suddenly perceived how foreign to his nature were the thoughts which he had been revolving in his mind ever since he had heard at the Verdurins that Odette had left, how novel the heartache from which he was suffering, but of which he was only now conscious, as though he had just woken up. What? All this disturbance simply because he would not see Odette? Now, till tomorrow, exactly what he had been hoping, not an hour before, as he drove toward Madame Verdurin's. He was obliged to admit that now, as he sat in the same carriage and drove to Prévost's, he was no longer the same man, was no longer alone, even, but that a new personality was there beside him, adhering to him, amalgamated with him, a creature from whom he might perhaps be unable to liberate himself, towards whom he might have to adopt some such stratagem as one uses to outwit a master, or a malady. And yet, during this last moment, in which he had felt that another, a fresh personality, was thus conjoined with his own, life had seemed, somehow, more interesting. It was in vain that he assured himself that this possible meeting at Prévost's, the tension of waiting for which so ravished, stripped so bare the intervening moments, that he could find nothing, not one idea, not one memory in his mind, beneath which his troubled spirit might take shelter and repose, would probably, after all, should it take place, be much the same as all their meetings, of no great importance. As on every other evening, once he was in Odette's company, once he had begun to cast furtive glances at her changing countenance, and instantly to withdraw his eyes, lest he should read in them the first symbols of desire, and believe no more in his indifference, he would cease to be able even to think of her, so busy would he be in the search for pretexts which would enable him not to leave her immediately, and to assure himself, without betraying his concern, that he would find her again next evening at the Verdurins. Pretexts, that is to say, which would enable him to prolong the time being, 
and to renew for one day more the disappointment, the torturing deception that must always come to him with the vain presence of this woman whom he might approach, yet never dared embrace. She was not at Prevost's. He must search for her then, in every restaurant upon the boulevards. To save time, while he went in one direction, he sent in the other his coachman, Rémy, Rizzo's Doge Loridan, for whom he presently, after a fruitless search, found himself waiting at the spot where the carriage was to meet him. It did not appear, and Swann tantalized himself, with alternate pictures of the approaching moment as one in which Rémy would say to him, Sir, the lady is there, or as one in which Rémy would say to him, Sir, the lady was not in any of the cafés. And so he saw himself faced by the close of his evening, a thing uniform, and yet bifurcated by the intervening accident, which would either put an end to his agony by discovering Odette, or would oblige him to abandon any hope of finding her that night, to accept the necessity of returning home without having seen her. The coachman returned, but as he drew up opposite him, Swann asked, not, did you find the lady, but remind me to-morrow to order in some more firewood. I'm sure we must be running short. Perhaps he had persuaded himself that, if Remy had at last found Odette in some café, where she was waiting for him still, then his night of misery was already obliterated by the realization, begun already in his mind, of a night of joy and that there was no need for him to hasten towards the attainment of happiness already captured and held in a safe place, which would not escape his grasp again. But it was also by the force of inertia. There was in his soul that want of adaptability which can be seen in the bodies of certain people, who, when the moment comes to avoid a collision, to snatch their clothes out of reach of a flame, or to perform any other such necessary movement, take their time, as the saying is, begin by remaining for a moment in their original position, as though seeking to find in it a starting point, a source of strength and motion. And, probably, if the coachman had interrupted him with, I have found the lady, he would have answered, Oh, yes, of course, that's what I told you to do. I had quite forgotten and would have continued to discuss his supply of firewood, so as to hide from his servant the emotion that he had felt, and to give himself time to break away from the thraldom of his anxieties, and abandon himself to pleasure. The coachman came back, however, with the report that he could not find her anywhere, and added the advice as an old and privileged servant, I think, sir, that all we can do now is to go home. But the air of indifference which Swann could so lightly assume when Remy uttered his final, unalterable response, fell from him like a cast-off cloak when he saw Remy attempt to make him abandon hope and retire from the quest. Certainly not, he exclaimed. We must find the lady. It is most important. She would be extremely put out. 
it's a business matter, and vexed with me if she didn't see me. But I do not see how the lady can be vexed, sir, answered Remy, since it was she that went away without waiting for you, sir, and said she was going to Prevost's, and then wasn't there. Meanwhile, the restaurants were closing, and their lights began to go out. Under the trees of the boulevards there were still a few people strolling to and fro, barely distinguishable in the gathering darkness. Now and then the ghost of a woman glided up to Swan, murmured a few words in his ears, asked him to take her home, and left him shuddering. Anxiously he explored every one of these vaguely seen shapes, as though among the phantoms of the dead, in the realms of darkness, he had been searching for a lost Eurydice. Among all the methods by which love is brought into being, among all the agents which disseminate that blessed bane, there are few so efficacious as the great gust of agitation which, now and then, sweeps over the human spirit. For then the creature in whose company we are seeking amusement at the moment, her lot is cast, her fate and ours decided. That is the creature whom we shall henceforward love. It is not necessary that she should have pleased us, up till then, any more, or even as much as others. All that is necessary is that our taste for her should become exclusive, and that condition is fulfilled so soon as, in the moment when she has failed to meet us, for the pleasure which we were on the point of enjoying in her charming company is abruptly substituted an anxious, torturing desire, whose object is the creature herself, an irrational, absurd desire, which the laws of civilized society make it impossible to satisfy and difficult to assuage, the insensate, agonizing desire to possess her. Swann made Remy drive him to such restaurants as were still open. It was the sole hypothesis, now, of that happiness which he had contemplated so calmly. He no longer concealed his agitation, the price he set upon their meeting, and promised, in case of success, to reward his coachman, as though, by inspiring in him a will to triumph, which would reinforce his own, he could bring it to pass by a miracle, that Odette, assuming that she had long since gone home to bed, might yet be found seated in some restaurant on the boulevards. He pursued the quest as far as the Maison Dorée, burst twice into Tortones, and still, without catching sight of her, was emerging from the Café Anglais, striding with haggard gaze towards his carriage, which was waiting for him at the corner of the Boulevard des Italiens, when he collided with the person coming in the opposite direction. It was Odette. She explained later that there had been no room at Prévost's, that she had gone instead to sup at the Maison Dorée, and had been sitting there in an alcove, where he must have overlooked her, and that she was now looking for her carriage. She had so little expected to see him, that she started back in alarm. As for him, he had ransacked the streets of Paris, not that he supposed possible that he should find her, but because 
he would have suffered even more cruelly by abandoning the attempt. But now the joy, which his reason had never ceased to assure him, was not, that evening at least, to be realized. But now the joy was suddenly apparent, and more real than ever before, for he himself had contributed nothing to it by anticipating probabilities. It remained integral and external to himself. There was no need for him to draw on his own resources to endow it with truth. Twas from itself that there emanated, twas itself that projected towards him that truth whose glorious rays melted and scattered like the cloud of a dream, the sense of loneliness which had lowered over him, that truth upon which he had supported, nay, founded, albeit unconsciously, his vision of bliss. So will a traveller who has come down on a day of glorious weather to the Mediterranean shore, and is doubtful whether they still exist, those lands which he has left, let his eyes be dazzled rather than cast a backward glance by the radiance streaming towards him from the luminous and unfading azure at his feet. He climbed after her into the carriage which she had kept waiting, and ordered his own to follow. She had in her hand a bunch of catligas, and Swan could see, beneath the film of lace that covered her head, more of the same flowers fastened to a swan's-down plume. She was wearing, under her cloak, a flowing gown of black velvet, caught up on one side so as to reveal a large triangular patch of her white silk skirt, with an insertion, also of white silk, in the cleft of her low-necked bodice, in which were fastened a few more cutleas. She had scarcely recovered from the shock which the sight of Swan had given her, when some obstacle made the horse start to one side. They were thrown forward from their seats. She uttered a cry, and fell back quivering and breathless. "'It's all right,' he assured her. "'Don't be frightened.' And he slipped his arm round her shoulder, supporting her body against his own. Then went on, "'Whatever you do, don't utter a word. Just make a sign, yes or no, or you'll be out of breath again. You won't mind if I put the flowers straight on your bodice. The jolt has loosened them. I'm afraid of their dropping out. I'm just going to fasten them a little more securely.' She was not used to being treated with such formality by men, and smiled as she answered, "'No, not at all. I don't mind in the least.' But he, chilled a little by her answer, perhaps, also to bear out the pretense that he had been sincere in adopting the stratagem, or even because he was already beginning to believe that he had been, exclaimed, "'No, no, you mustn't speak. You will be out of breath again. You can easily answer in signs. I shall understand. Really and truly now, you don't mind my doing this. Look!' There is a little, I, I think it must be pollen, spilt over your dress. May I brush it off with my hand? That's not too hard. I'm not hurting you, am I? I'm tickling you, perhaps, a little. But I don't want to touch the velvet, in case I rub it the wrong way. But, don't you see, I really had to fasten the flowers. They would have fallen out if I hadn't. 
like that now if i just push them a little farther down seriously i'm not annoying you am i and if i just sniff them to see whether they've really lost their scent i don't believe i ever smelt any before may i tell the truth now still smiling she shrugged her shoulders ever so slightly as who should say you're quite mad you know very well that i like it he slipped his other hand upwards along odette's cheek she fixed her eyes on him with that languishing and solemn air which marks the women of the old florentines paintings in whose faces he had found the type of hers swimming at the brink of her fringed lids her brilliant eyes large and finely drawn as theirs seemed on the verge of breaking from her face and rolling down her cheeks like two great tears she bent her neck as all their necks may be seen to bend in the pagan scenes as well as in the scriptural and although her attitude was doubtless habitual and instinctive one which she knew to be appropriate to such moments and was careful not to forget to assume she seemed to need all her strength to hold her face back as though some invisible force were drawing it down towards swans and swan it was who before she allowed her face as though despite her efforts to fall upon his lips held it back for a moment longer a little distance between his hands he had intended to leave time for her mind to overtake her body's movements to recognize the dream which she so long cherished and to assist at its realization like a mother invited as a spectator when a prize is given to the child whom she has reared and loves perhaps moreover swann himself was fixing upon these features of an odette not yet possessed not even kissed by him on whom he was looking now for the last time that comprehensive gaze with which on the day of his departure a traveller strives to bear away with him in memory the view of a country to which he may never return end of section 17